As we get settled in, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 4, where today uh, we're going to continue uh, in our Revive and Rebuild series by looking uh, at God's people beginning the work on the wall. As you turn there, I want to remind you and just kind of recap uh, a couple of things from last week. And then uh, I'm going to give you a summary of chapter 3 before diving into chapter 4. And so uh, quickly, because we got a lot to get through today, uh, let's jump right in. So uh, we saw last week that Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king Artaxerxes, uh, he gets permission uh, by Artaxerxes uh, to go to Jerusalem. And upon arriving in Jerusalem, what he does, he doesn't just begin to act. He, he, he takes time uh, to survey the state of things in Jerusalem, and then he acts. And so what he does is he draws God's people together, all the leaders and the people, and he says, hey, look, uh, this is what's going on. And he first shares honestly the reality of where God's people find themselves. And then he takes some time to call them to the work that God has called them to. Uh, he, he seeks to motivate and encourage them to be a part of God's plan of revival and rebuilding. And what we saw in the text last week is that really the response was twofold. First, God's people respond in that they unite and they act upon this call. In the text it says that they look and someone says, let us, man, do this work. Then it says that they strengthen their hand for the work. They set their gaze towards the work that needs to be accomplished. And that's going to be needed as we're going to see today because guess what? There's another response in chapter 2 that's going to continue on. Opposition comes. Sanballat and Tobiah, who we're going to talk about over and over again throughout this book, they show up and they start questioning the motives and the work of God's people. And in life, as we closed last week, what we need to realize, what we need to remember is that life is filled with opposition that must be met, not with the power of our own might and strength, but faith that what God has called us to, He will see through, working it all for His glory and our good. I said last week it was a good work that God's people were called into. And for us today, it is a good work that he calls us into. Not That doesn't necessarily mean it's an easy work, but it is a good work. You see, the story of Nehemiah is a story about the church. When we study Nehemiah, what we find is that it has a lot to teach us about what we as the church are called to today in the midst of things that seem really broken and ruined, do they not? You see, the church in some ways feels like it's in ruins. Uh, man, if you, uh, man, if you've been a part of church culture, if you've been invested in the life of the church, what you're going to realize and note is that, man, it is filled. It seems filled. I believe the reality is, is that we find this in moments. And I think it's very apparent now that there's a lot of discord in the life of the church. And there's a lot of anger in the life of the church. We, we spend a lot of time fighting against flesh and blood when Scripture would call us not to what? Not to fight against flesh and blood because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Not only that, but along with this discord and anger, man, the church 
by and large is filled. And I don't believe it's just the last two years that have done this. I think it's the last two years that have exposed this, but it's filled with a lot of apathy. The church, in some ways, has become second rate. The church is just another piece of a large buffet that you can just come and consume from, right? So nowadays, like, you can hit up any live stream you want, right? You don't have to be invested. You don't have to show up. You don't have to buy in. You just say, well, yeah, you've, you've heard the adage, man, I, I love Jesus, but what? I don't love the church. It can't be. It's not biblical. The church has become or been delegated to a really low spot on the list of importance. And so we see that there's a lot of things that feel really broken and ruined. And while some of those things that have been exposed over the last few years regarding the life and work of the church, I mean, there's some of those things that just need to be left in ruins because they weren't biblical and they weren't needed. But there's other things that need to be acknowledged and repented of. Things that we run to that are broken cisterns because the church itself, the bride of Christ, is something that we are to continue to not only love, but to be deeply involved in. There are no solo Christians in the kingdom. Following Jesus always comes about in the context of community. You see, Nehemiah is a book that teaches us what it means for us as the display people of God to love our city, to serve our city, and to bring restorative good news to the broken places of our city. You see, this is what we're after when we say the vision of Center Church is that we would be good neighbors to Brenham. And yes, I mean your literal neighbors, but also that you would just be a neighborly person. And we would do that by joyfully displaying the good news of Jesus in every single part of our life. This is our call. This is our mission. This is what it means to recover. Uh, we are called to recover what it means to be God's people in a time where the church seems to be really fractured and broken. And we need to do as Nehemiah does, assess the situation. We need to look at it and honestly call it what it is, where it is broken down. And then we need to motivate and encourage so that we might set our gaze, that we might do the work and ask God to strengthen our hand. And so with that, let's begin with the summary of Nehemiah chapter 3 before jumping into Nehemiah 4. And the way I want to do that is I want to tell a story about my grandfather and our family genealogy. So if you look at Nehemiah 3, if you have your Bibles, uh, Nehemiah 3 is just a whole bunch of names. It's like this person, this person, this person, they walked on, they worked on this part of the wall, and then it goes on, and it's laying all this stuff out, and we're not gonna read all that, while I am gonna make the case that it is very important, and we should be encouraged by these names today, uh, we're not going to look at it just for the sake of time, but I want to tell a story that I think really it kind of pushes into what chapter 3 is leading into. And so I want to do that by telling a story about my grandfather. His name was, we called him Pop, okay? So I'm going to say Pop or Grandpa, but mostly Pop. So my grandfather, two things you need to know about him really quickly. First is that he never graduated high school. He quit school in about the 8th or ninth grade and he got his GED and then he went on to work and then go into the Army Reserves and, and everything. But he never got a high school degree. And I remember uh, I was probably looking through my yearbook around middle school. And I saw, you know, in a yearbook they have superlatives, right? 
And so I went up to my grandfather, Pop, and I said, hey, Pop, um, were you like the valedictorian or salutatorian in your class? And, and I didn't know at that point he didn't finish school. And he looked at me and goes, no, 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 Kyle. But I did get a superlative. And I said, all right. Well, what? he said, well, Kyle, I was most likely to succeed. In my mind, I heard succeed, right? And so I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, my grandfather, like, he was amazing. He didn't get that. He wasn't first or second, but maybe third because he got most likely to succeed. No, what he said was succeed. Okay, like that, they looked at him and said, that's about all you're going to do is sack seed for the rest of your life. And it took me a lot of years to where one day I was thinking and I was like, wait a second. He didn't say what I thought he said. He, he was actually, really, he was just joking with me because he, he didn't, right? He, he, well, he succeeded, but he, he didn't graduate. So he didn't get a superlative. You see, while he didn't finish school, up until about the last eight years of his life, he was one of the most avid book readers I've ever been around. And if you know me, like I love books. I love buying books. I love just having books, right? I love reading books. But he was an avid reader of history. And man, he retained it and he would talk about it, right? Uh, he watched it on TV so much so that when I was a kid, I was like, Mom, when are Grammy and Pop going to get a TV that shows color and not just black and white, right? Because that's all. He just watched war shows. But he was an avid reader. He was thirsty for knowledge. You see, later in life, he ha- had some health problems. And as his health got worse, uh, man, it seemed that his passion for reading waned. But he grew a new passion. And that passion was to tell me often that I needed to sit down on the computer and spend time working on our family genealogy. He he wanted to know where he had come from and what people in our family had accomplished. He, man, I believe what was happening in those last years of his life is that he was wrestling with what life was about and whether or not our family brought anything to the table. And so he had this drive and he would tell me often, hey, you need to get on that Ancestry.com thing. And you need to just research the Ogle family. You, you, I, I want you to, to, to dig up the stories of our past. And so he would tell me that. And honestly, like, just to be honest, like, I never got around to it. Uh, but also, I just had a lot of questions as to why we needed to do that. And most of which had to do with the nature of our family. You see, to me, and, and maybe to most around, while the Ogles were a hardworking people, well respected in the town we lived in, uh, they were known in the past, myself included, uh, to cause a lot of trouble. And so when I, actually a running joke in our family was that the reason we lived in Texas was likely due to us getting kicked out of every other place until we just settled here and they said, it's fine, you can stay. I would argue that our genealogy work might have been better suited to start with, not with Ancestry.com, but just with jail records. Like, they could probably find out a lot about our family by just looking at the jail records of the past because probably spent a lot of time there. And so, like, I, I would hear that and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, man, that, you know, my, my, my grandfather's heart was that he longed to see those in our family who made a difference. Because, you see, I think at the end of his life, he was hoping that he had made a difference. And by and large, he had. I tell you story after story of how generous he was with people. I mean, his intentions, by and large, weren't all wrong. I mean, my great, 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 great grandfather fought for the Union Army in the Civil War. 
In our family line during medieval times, there was a knight that is actually, his name is Sir Ogle. He lived in a castle. There's in like Scotland, it's called Ogle Castle, right? And, and so like, man, he was a big name back in the day. They even wrote a poem about a dinner party that he threw at his castle. But the problem with that poem is that while he was a well-respected knight, it's about him cutting the guy's head off at the dinner table with a mace, right? So it's a mixed bag, right? Like It's like, there's some, yeah, that's good. Then you learn about it and you're like, ah, I don't know. Uh, and, and so we have all this information. But nevertheless, while I wanted to just move on and let life be without the knowledge of my past, man, really I look back now and I wish I would have done more of that work. That I would learn more about my family and uh, about their lives. Because man, now that most of my family's gone, a lot of that seems lost. And if we're not careful, we look at Nehemiah 3 and we think to ourselves, man, it's just a list of names. We, there's meat. Let's get to chapter 4. There's meat in chapter 4. But I believe that this genealogical list reveals to us a beautiful picture of what it means to be in God's family, on God's mission, for God's glory. You see, this list of names tells the story of how God's people unite together and allow God to specifically strengthen their hands for the purpose of rebuilding that which has been torn down. It's a list that should draw us to see that in God's kingdom, we all, if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't simply have a part to play, but you are significant enough to be named no matter how big the part is. You may be, you're like Nehemiah 3, like is your name in there? No, but like if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the land with a life. You see these names, and I encourage you to go back and reflect and think about what the, the meaning that these names carry and the things that they accomplished together are for us today as an encouragement and a calling to see what we can get done when God's people live in humble unity together, when they support one another, when we use our gifts for the purpose of revival and rebuilding. So today, how has God gifted you and how are you using your giftings to further the kingdom of God in the context of the local church? Not simply how you think you're gifted, because we do that a lot of times. We're like, well, I'm gifted in this way, but I'm not gifted to helping children. Right. And we just use it as a cop out not to serve. Right. Like in an area we don't really like. But I don't think that's what this is about, because if you read uh, Nehemiah chapter three, what you find is there's a lot of really high up people that are doing really menial tasks. And vice versa. How are you laying your life down for the kingdom of God? You see, uh, man, a living life in the kingdom will call you to jump into things that are new and uncomfortable. They'll call you to be transparent and real where you are and what you struggle with along the way, though. You see, doing the work of reviving and rebuilding uh, comes as God is reviving and rebuilding that which is in us. Revival and rebuilding always includes sacrifice and a growing willingness towards transparency. And see, the thing about that is that scares most. But it's worth the cost because it's really of no ultimate cost at all to you. For Jesus has already paid the price and secured our victory. We have been empowered and commissioned by the King of Kings to go and rebuild, to be fruitful and multiply that which has been torn down. 
So for each of us in this room, let me just summarize this list. Let me say three things. First, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have significant value in the kingdom, no matter if you feel gifted or not. You are. And the reason you are is because God defines that and empowers it, not you. Next, you not only have value, you are of significant importance. We need you to jump in and be part of the work. You have an important part to play. And since everyone has a part to play, and you are both of significant value and significant importance in the eyes of God, I want to invite you right now uh, into the work with us. Will you join us in our calling as a church that, that wants to, that seeks to be good neighbors to Brenham by joyfully displaying the good news of Jesus with our lives? And if so, jump in. Look for ways to serve. Stretch yourself. Step out. Encourage others. Get discipled. Disciple others. Be involved in a missional community. This is our calling. But with the chapter, with that chapter behind us, let's dig into chapter four because we still got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to do it. So Nehemiah four verses one through six. So they've begun building the wall. It says this. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break it down. He'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Okay, so following Nehemiah's honest assessment, the motivation and encouragement, God's people unite together, strengthen their hand for the work of head. And as you see in chapter 3, they get to work. But even in the midst of this great work, guess what? Sambalat and Tobias show up again. Opposition continues. For opposition to God's kingdom while futile will not end until Jesus returns and destroys Satan for all time. I'll say it again. Satan is a turd. Two weeks in a row. Yes. And he will not stop seeking to oppose and bring a stop to the work of God. He continues to come back and our call is to continue to proclaim the hope of the gospel to his face and to the face of all who find themselves in opposition to the kingdom of God. Guess why, guess why we do that? Because you were once in opposition to the kingdom of God. And yet God, by His grace, reveals Himself. I was once in opposition to the kingdom of God, and yet God, by His grace, revealed Himself. That opposition looks as we love others, as we serve others, as we proclaim better news. 
You see, often the problem is, is that, man, followers of Jesus, instead of proclaiming better news, what we tend to do is we tend to just get down in the pig pen and throw mud instead of proclaiming the good news we're called to proclaim. That, that, but that's a sermon for another day. What we see here in Nehemiah 4 is with the work continuing, Sambalat starts throwing a hissy fit. And so he goes to his boys because not only are haters going to hate, but haters love company. And he begins jeering at God's people by calling them feeble and questioning their ability to finish the work. Two, two things here. First, what arrogance and ignorance on his part. But second, people, and we need to remember this, will always be ready to tear down and discount the work God is doing in and through you and in and through the church. Pay them no mind. For we are not feeble, but empowered by the very Spirit of God, and He will not fail to finish the work He has started, be it in us or around us. So Samuel throws his hissy fit, and not to be outdone, Tobiah, whom when I think about Tobiah in this, in this book, all I can think about is every like henchman sidekick, you know, that you see in the movies that's just not quite all there. Uh, but he's just, you know, he's just ready to do whatever. Like he decides to jump in and, and he makes a joke. He says, look, if a fox were to jump on the wall, it would break it down. Which to us, that sounds kind of silly. But man, if you really think about the opposition and the things that have been said about you and your faith in God, are they not silliness in comparison to the truth of Scripture? The things that we get so worked up about that we get so beside ourselves about, man, in light of the gospel and the truth of Scripture, they're silliness. But then again, how often do we find ourselves seized by fear at the slightest form of verbal opposition? And I can feel really secure, and then at the slightest word, man, it just wrecks me. And I think in that moment, it says more about my, where my identity and ego resides and finds security than what was actually said. But the goal in all this opposition is to create inward doubt, to discourage and bring a discouragement in the minds and hearts of God's people. But, but in the midst of this, I love the quick transitional response. It, it seems a bit confusing because you read verse 3 and it's uh, Sambalet and Tobiah. And then in verse 4, boom, this prayer starts. And it's like, well, is, are they praying this? No, it's Nehemiah. In the midst of their jeering and their joking, Nehemiah just prays. He cries out in desperation of soul, for they are despised by the, these men in the army of Samaria. But even in his desperation, he knows where his rescue is found. And he asks God, he says, turn their taunts back on their heads. Uh, let them be exposed for who they are. Let them be plundered, uh, that their guilt and sin would not be covered. He prays a big, bold prayer. And it's followed by an even bigger response. Uh, look at what happens in verse 6. After praying in verse 6, what do they do? They don't wait on next best practices or for their prayer to be fulfilled in full. Rather, they trust that God's judgment will have His day and that their calling is still the same. And it says they got back to building the wall. You see, the people in the midst of opposition had a mind to work, not sit around and complain about the ruling forces that are abusing their rights and making jokes about the feelings of their faith. They pray for God to act and then they get back to work the work they've been commissioned by God to do. And I believe we could heed and live more like this as God's people today. For while we spend time praying for God to act, 
it's often that he would bring in, in, in light that he would bring justice. We spend most of our time bad mouthing those opposed to us and seeking secondary ways to win the day instead of trusting that the cross has won the day and that we are called to get back to the work of making disciples, planting churches and displaying the glory of God's grace. Church, we have work to do. Stop throwing mud and build the kingdom. We have work to do. Let's pray and then get to work. Let us let God be God and do the things He's promised while we stay in our lane as His people who in the midst of identity attacking opposition continue to proclaim the better news of the kingdom. But along with this, we have to continue to proclaim even if the threat of identity opposition turns into the threat of external opposition and exhaustion. This is what happens in verses 7 through 13 in the story. I'm not going to read it. I'll just tell you about it. You see, the identity attacks don't seem to be working. And so Sambalit and Tobiah try to show their strength. And, and what they do is they put together this military parade. And they kind of march around the city to show uh, the, how great the Samaritan army is. And yet again in verse 9, God's people didn't seek to match muscle with muscle and weapon with weapon. Rather... They prayed. And they set guards around the city night and day. You see, there's a deeper threat building in verses 10 through 13. What you find is that God's people in the face of the work before them and the threats around them, they find themselves physically, spiritually, and emotionally exhausted. The work, while empowered by God, is still work. And it's not easy. Again, it's a good work, but not an easy work. And yet so often, while we go in all gung-ho about what God has called us into, man, don't we tend to just throw up our hands and discuss when things get difficult? We have not the fortitude and spiritual muscle to labor on, likely because we tend to try to do it in our own strength in the first place. Man, this is a real reality for us. Like, like how many of you today feel weary as a follower of Jesus? And I, I do. Not in every part of my life. And how many of you today, you feel alone, whether self-inflicted isolation or, man, maybe you've just been wounded a little bit. I mean, the answer for both of those things today and the answer we find in regards to what's going on in the book of Nehemiah is that we are to have hope and be encouraged. We're to look to God, to press in, not turn away from community, to cry out for help from God and others. We are to go to one another in support and aid when things feel as if they are failing. You see, while the world scoffs at this and says you need to crush others and promote yourself, we live in a kingdom that acknowledges the struggle and at times exhausting nature of life. And instead of crushing or condemning, we step in as Nehemiah does to support and encourage. Look at verse 14. It'll be up on the screen. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. 
You see, Nehemiah's response was to encourage them to not fear, but to remember God. Who is great and awesome and in turn quit focusing so much on you and seek to fight for others. Church today, we are called to fight for one another. To not fear the circumstances and opposition that seeks to discourage and destroy us, but to remember God who is great and awesome. And by way of His great love for His people, He sent His Son, Jesus, to fight our greatest enemy for us. The enemy that marches before us day and night and condemns us, who attacks our identity and seeks to thwart God's plans. Jesus came and did not fear, but fought for us by surrendering Himself in our place, dying on our behalf and rising in victory. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid. We can remember God who is great and awesome. And guess what? We can fight for our brothers, our sons, our daughters, our wives, and our homes, our city. May this be our response. I love what happens at the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read it, but beginning in verse 14, uh, it says, because the enemies realize that their plans have been frustrated, they turn away. Guess what? They're going to come back. But it says God's people return to the wall. And it says, from that day forward, half of the people worked on the wall while the other half stood guard. He goes, he says, even those who carried the burdens of the work, even those who were carrying material and supplies, he says they carried it and were loaded in such a way that they could hold it and then hold a weapon in the other hand. And in our lives, God, he, 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 because of the power of His Spirit and because of His Word, and no matter what we're carrying, no matter what we're walking through, what circumstance we find ourselves in, man, He is there and His Word is good. And that's what we need to run to. Prayer and God's Word. Prayer and God's Word. Not alone, but in community. Over and over and over again. Nehemiah goes on to say, hey, look, man, they, they could spring on us at any moment. So if you hear this trumpet, let's rally Together. They had a rallying cry. You see, God's people were equipped and ready for battle, but they also held on to the hope that it would be God who would fight for them. That's what Nehemiah says. He says, hey, I'm going to blow this trumpet, but guess what? Even though we gather together, guess what? It's God who's going to fight for us. We have the ultimate rallying cry. The cross of Jesus Christ. We rally around the good news of Jesus. I mean, what that does is that no matter what, we can look and say it's going to be okay because the victory has been won. Because guess what? He fought our battle. They know nothing of this yet in this story, but we do. Today, church, are we equipped for the battle? Or do you find yourself in fear of opposition, exhausted and isolated without much hope? Let us turn to God in prayer. Let us unite together, remember the Lord, and get to work. 
If we're going to rebuild and revive that which is torn down, we must learn what it means to grow together as the community of God for the purpose of completing the work. We must believe that each of us carries significant value and significant importance and we have been invited in to support the work that God has given us. But it's going to take all of us. May we look to the Word of God. May we cry out to God in dependent prayer and with humble faith as God's people get back to building the wall. I'm going to have the team come back up. And man, I just want us to spend some time just reflecting. What, what, what does that mean for you today? What does that mean for us as a church? Man, is that our hearts together? As you think about that, man, what do you need to stop focusing on so that you might get in on the work? Where is the church on that list? Where do you need to lay down your anger and discord, things that are secondary that won't matter a lick in eternity, and say, no, I'm going to be around the, the rallying cry of the gospel? Today, you need to pull, you need to, through repentance and faith and obedience, and maybe going to tell a brother or sister in Christ, hey, I need help getting out of the pig pen because I'm just throwing a lot of mud right now. Where do you need to quit believing the lie that you have no value, no significance, no real gifting, and start believing the truth? That, 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 man, if you're a follower of Jesus, something greater resides in you. And then no matter what it is, that you can step in it. Man, how do you need to say, oh God, will you just stretch me in some ways? Will you, man, just open hand, God, like whatever you, however you want me to be a part of this, I'll be a part of this. What in your life needs to be brought to light so that you're free to build how do you need encouragement from those in the church to combat where you struggle and feel exhausted? And are you telling people that? Like it's not just like coming in here and it's like if you're a part of a missional community and I hope you are, it's not just showing up there and acting like everything's okay. Like we want that to be a space where you can say, hey, this is what's up. This is where I'm discouraged. This is where I'm exhausted. And then allow others to speak life. Not better practices. Maybe you need to grow in discipline. And then how might you need to encourage others to continue on? You see, to see this, we have to be united and be together. In Nehemiah, it says that they were together day and night. In Acts 2, we see that, man, every day they got together. And I don't want you to hear, oh gosh, we've got to be together every single day? I don't think that's necessarily what it means that we have to be together 24-7. I think more what it means is that we're committed to the life of the church, even when that means saying no to things that get in the way of being part of the life of the church. That we would see it as great importance. That's what we're after. And we've got work to do. Both in here and out there. But God's won the victory and He fights the battle for us. Let's just freely be empowered to get to work.
So I want to invite you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to share in communion to come. And and man, just be reminded of the ultimate expression of victory that came by what looked like defeat. That Jesus did not shy away from all the things that were said to Him, but that He set His eyes in joy to the cross knowing what it would bring about. Our freedom, our life, So that you would remember that today as you share. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you not partake. But man, we want you, man, today. If today, if you're listening to this, you're like, man, I have no clue. I have no, there's no grid for what that means, man. If you want to talk about what it means to to give your life over to Jesus, man, come talk to me. But I also want to invite you, man, just spend time praying. If you need to get with someone and say, hey, we just, you know. Whether it's praying confession or praying for encouragement, that you would do that. Just crying out, that we would cry out together for God to use us. Not center church, the brand. God's people. So Jesus, I ask that you would move in such a mighty way. That we would have unity of mind, unity of heart, and that we would go out hand strengthened by Your Spirit. And that instead of throwing mud, that, that we would proclaim good news in word and deed. That we would quit running to those broken cisterns of things we think are going to rescue and give us hope. That we would run to You moment by moment. And we would know that, that, it's, that we're not alone in it. That we have the church that You've called us into a good work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.